Welcome to the Writing Time Podcast. I'm Blake Guthrie from the University of North Florida. Tonight we'll be continuing our exploration between the writers Anton Chekhov and Samuel Beckett. And specifically, this episode will focus in on Anton Chekhov's The Seagull, which the edition I will be reading from is a translation, the new version of Tom Stoppard's version. Act 1. The stage directions begin. Part of the park on Soren's estate, a stage hastily knocked together for a private performance, for the curtain which is at present closed, hiding a view of the lake. A few chairs, a small table. The sun has just gone down. On the stage behind the curtain are Yakov and other workmen. Coughing and hammering can be heard. Masha and Medvedenko enter, returning from a stroll. Note. Words bracketed in the dialogue are unspoken. So, from the initial ten lines of these stage directions, we have a broad picture, and it's so easy when you pick up a text like this to ignore stage directions. Let's, let's be very pedantic and particular about how we choose to read these. So, Act 1 begins part of the park on Soren's estate. Not even the whole park. Part of the park on Soren's estate. So we're already obscuring part of the scenery. We get part of it. A stage which is represented implicitly on top of the physical stage in which the audience is watching the play being performed. So it's a stage on a stage. A theater within a theater. Hastily knocked together, implying some kind of plywood or shoddy craftsmanship, or rush at least, for a private performance with a curtain which is at present closed, hiding a view of a lake. So the private performance suggests there's some kind of money, and if you contrast that with the idea that the stage on the stage is hastily knocked together, then we can envision the idea that these people are being swindled out of their money in the audience. If it's a private performance. Furthermore, with a curtain, which is at present closed, suggests that the stage on top of the stage has itself a curtain. So the stage on the stage becomes a theater within a theater. And the curtain that is on the stage on the stage, or in other words, the curtain within the curtain, is obscuring itself something further, a view of a lake. That's just four lines, and we've spent three minutes discussing them. A few chairs, a small table. Nothing really remarkable here. The sun has just gone down. On the stage behind the curtain are Yakov and other worksmen. Coughing and hammering can be heard. Masha and Medvedenko enter, returning from a stroll. There's, once again, not that much to be seen in the end of that. But yet, you can infer, the sun has just gone down, so evening, dark. Probably one light is going to be coming down on the center of the stage if it's suggesting nighttime. On the stage behind the curtain are Yakov and other worksmen. Coughing and hammering can be heard. So for whatever reason, the stage directions chose to name Yakov here, who I believe in another translation in English is Jacob which would make a lot more sense and would be easier on my tongue, but that is not my translation we are doing with this one. 
On the stage behind the curtain are Yakov and other workmen. Coughing and hammering can be heard. So we're already suggesting class. If this stage on the stage is a private performance and behind the curtain there's some kind of lower class, the construction class, then we have a sense of Russian politics without any kind of direct reference being made. Masha and Medvedenko enter, returning from the stroll. So at the same time, we don't know much about Yakov, but we can assume that there is a class disparity between Masha and Med- Medvedenko, um, who, who, if they have time to return from a stroll together, must have a lot of leisure. They must be upper class. Again, we have only moved through about eight lines, nine lines of stage direction, and there is a lot of meat packed in here. I won't even breach the physical text of this yet. I think it would be pretty interesting to talk about the self-awareness of this story as it unfolds. It, there's this idea by Kierkegaard, who Soren Kierkegaard, I should say, who whose life was really complicated. He's an existentialist thinker, a theologian, some might argue, and he's most famously known for his leap of faith. And the idea that he presents that's less commonly known that I have found to be more applicable in my own life is that, and this is introduced by Dr. Lunbury, I should add, Life can only be understood in reverse, but it must be lived forward in time. That's a paraphrase, of course, and I, th- I believe I'm reversing the clauses, but this podcast is rather extemporaneous. I don't have the notes that I should. And so Kierkegaard automatically applies to, to this podcast right now. It's super meta, but also in terms of the way this po- uh, this play progresses is that we see complications with how time passes in the seagull, and we see complications with how people relate to each other. So in other words, people can only be experienced going forward in the present, but they can only be understood in reverse, backwards in the past, which Kierkegaard seems to suggest is true of all time. It's generalizable. And I think that's a really, really provocative but interesting true concept about people. The seagull seems to suggest that. So if we look at the idea of the title, what is the seagull? We're talking about existentialism and we haven't even talked about the seagull. Well, if you think about what this, what, what we've already introduced with the first set of stage directions, there's a stage on a stage, a theater in a theater, and there's this kind of idea that the imagination is itself a process by which in a pro- production of a play is created. It, it's, it's hokey. It's meta. It's, it's self-aware. It's very Saturday Night Live in its uncanny realness. So one of my classmates in this writing time course, Georgie, performed a close reading on this play and specifically the way the seagull appears in this book. And rather than steal all of her evidence and her argument and reproduce that here, I will paraphrase it for for brevity and for authenticity. The seagull is introduced by Tripolev Konstantin um, 
who who are the same character in different translations. I have a different translation than hers and the rest of the classes. And then Trigorin and Nina. So Constantine's encounter with the seagull is concluded with, so I shall end my life. Trigorin's encounter with the seagull spawns a short story. Nina's is when she takes from Trigorin, she says, men who do because they can. This idea that might makes right, that or the modern incarnation would probably be something to the effect of male privilege, this kind of hierarchical domination between men and women. So, I, I'm not going to bear all the analysis and steal it from my classmate. I do have some differing thoughts, but this doesn't quite feel like the best venue for that at the moment. Uh, again, this is the kind of thing you would need to take notes on. But one of my classmates, Ryan, I do recall, he's, he had said that the seagull as a symbol is a red herring. It's a kind of all and nothing gesture by Chekhov. This seagull has red herring, and you could almost find a pun or a joke in there, the idea that a seagull could go fishing for a red herring in the sea. Uh, it'd be an awfully big catch, but that's besides the point. Is that the seagull is a symbol for symbolism or meaning-making. So the seagull is a dead seagull throughout this play. It is itself dead of meaning, without life, without playfulness, if you will. Of course there is a playfulness to it, but that's not physically within the play. This, this seagull as symbol for symbolism, or meaning-making, is kind of the first instance of its kind, a self-aware symbol that doesn't symbolize anything other than itself. If nothing else within this rather plotless play, that symbol system is pretty interesting. Symbolism is a kind of bad taxidermy. It's, pardon the pun, hunting for meaning. And then you can imagine Chuck Testa coming in and saying, nope. It's not the real thing. The seagull's not really a seagull. It's a symbol for a seagull. If that's not clear, I just have a horrible sense of humor. If we move on to observe Constantine, the character, as, as a writer, there's, there's something to be explored here. This could be its own episode. This could be itself a paper. Constantine is a writer. There's this idea that he just wants to go fishing. That's something that comes up a lot in The Seagull. The seagull could be seen as a symbol for liberation from writing to Constantine. Not, not throughout the play, but to Constantine. When he remarks upon the seagull, you, you could find evidence for this. If the seagull... It's a symbol for Constantine's liberation from writing. Then the question arises, do seagulls go fishing? You know, I was making the joke about the red herring. Like, a seagull swooping up a red herring and fishing. I don't know enough about seagulls and fish. I, I probably should have looked this one up, too. This is really easy to solve. But 
if we extend the metaphor at least, if we don't think about the literal taxonomical relationship of seagulls and fish, it's as though the seagull, which ends up stuffed in the play in the third in third incarnation, the stuffed seagull becomes stuffed with words, with ideas, with symbolic meaning in the writing of Constantine. Thus, Constantine wants to go fishing not to achieve anything, but to, I, I guess, become the seagull. He wants to be able to go fishing. Go swoop down and catch a, a fish out of the water and and then go be free in the sky again. Not be chained to the writing desk. Not be shackled to authorial contracts. But that is just one such rather meta interpretation. Another brief idea I'd like to explore that could also become its own episode is the theme in Chekhov. This is more than just the seagull, but this comes up again in the seagull, something I've noticed. Is this theme of the writer disparaging his own craft. And the first time I noticed this is in A Doctor's Visit, in which Chekhov's narrator goes into a factory town and starts to say that people who read don't do much other than create just shadow images in their head. They don't actually think, they, they so on. Re really saying that at the end of the day, writers and readers are really just fundamentally lonely people. Here again, then the seagull, rather than reading and, and specifically writing, illuminating thought, it in fact stifles it. Stories are always, in this conception, this Chekhovian portrayal, stories are just obscuring the real. And so, let's move on. In The Seagull. One of my other classmates, Dominic, had the idea of how Chekhov presents reality in art. In this view, art obscures reality. And so the evidence for this, I mean, it begins at the very beginning. Setup of the stage, the stage and the curtain relationship, the obscurity that we, we outlined at the very beginning. Art obscures reality. The stage on the stage with the curtain behind the curtain, the theater within the theater is itself obscuring reality. And if you look as a second piece of evidence, you can see the character Dorn doing a lot of the art philosophizing. You'll see her pop up over and over and over around these key moments. A few more considerations before we wrap up this week. There's also the idea of Tripolev's new theater that he envisions. It's as though Chekhov were envisioning a political and poetical prescient future theater. He, he says of Tripolev in, in The Seagull, he thinks in images. And then when we look at something like what Samuel Beckett is doing in his theater, like take Waiting for Godot, for instance, which we will be getting to next week. There's a tree, and the tree is an image. And that might not sound super profound, but nothing really happens in Waiting for Godot. They're just waiting. And that's the point. 
Beckett's post-war play is almost a response to Chekhov's anticipation of the pre-war play of images. Whereas before the war, theater was recognized as a legitimate source of how to play out the chronicle of human drama, in Beckett's time after the war, there were no pretenses about authenticity. It was just what was. The image superseded the narrative because the image had become powerful at last. Theater used to have sturdy oaks. Now they're just stumps. And if you've read the play, you'll know what I'm talking about. The seagull, as with the play we'll be looking at next week, uh, Waiting for Godot, as far as symbols go, they're empty. They're symbols of symbols. They're empty signifiers. Empty signifiers. Before we wrap up this week, there's a couple things I want to try and address, which I realized this week's episode was reading off of my notes. I wasn't actually looking to the the physical text. And rather than trying to organize and reconstruct it for you, which would be worth doing in its own right, but it's been done elsewhere, I'm going to choose to read a couple passages that really stood out to me that I appreciated and that might be building into further kind of thoughts and thought exercises in the future, especially if I'm going to write about this play or, or do some more thinking over a microphone, if you will. Arcadina says, about page 12 of my edition, the bodies of all creatures that ever lived are as dust. Their indestructible matter is become stones, water, clouds, and their souls are become one soul, and that soul is me. I am the souls of Alexander the Great, of Caesar, of Shakespeare, of Napoleon, and of the lowest leeches. In me, godlike reason is fused with animal instinct. Every memory is in my memory, and every life is lived again in me. Furthermore, Nina, I am all alone. Once in a hundred years I open my lips to speak, and my voice echoes dismally in the void, and there is no one to hear me, not even you, pale fires. Born at the turn of night, from the rotting swamps, to wander at the earth till day is breaking, devoid of thought or will or any pulse of life. The devil... Lord of the eternal matter, fearful of life is coming to you, has caused the ceaseless exchanging of your atoms as in rocks and water so that you are forever altering as you alter, and the whole universe spirit is the only constant. I'm like a prisoner cast deep into an empty well, not knowing where I am or what awaits me. The only thing that I've been made to know is that the bitter struggle with the devil who commands the forces of matter I am destined to be victorious, and then I will follow a wondrous fusion of matter and spirit to bring about the rule of the cosmic will. Yet first, the moon and the bright Sirius and the earth, little by little over millennia after millennia, must come to dust. Until that time, there shall only be the horror. The horror. The horror. 
Here's something a little more lighthearted. This is from Arcadina, about page 14 of my edition. I don't mind if listening to gibberish once in a while, if it's to entertain, but if it was the apparently supposed to be a new theatrical form, oh, the art of the future. Dorn says, about page 25, No, it's nonsense. Wine and tobacco rob you of your identity. After a cigar or a glass of vodka, you're no longer just you. You're you and this other fellow. Your first-person singular self goes out of focus, and before you know where you are, you start thinking of yourself in the third person. Oh, him. Here's an idea from Constantine. Women can forgive anything but a failure. Interesting. And I could keep going, but I'm already running this into the 20-minute range. I'm going to go ahead and add this in here. The most beautiful passage in the entire Siegel, which I might actually do something further with, for sure. You'd think I'd be allowed to relax, lose myself, but no. Something is already moving in my brain like a heavy iron ball, a new idea, a new story, and it's dragging me back to my desk. I have to rush back and write, and write. And that's how it is, all the time. I'm never left in peace, and as if I'm devouring my own life, to make the honey for the readers out there. I'm gathering up the pollen from my best flowers, breaking off the flowers themselves, trampling on their roots. I could be a madman. And what friends and acquaintances actually treating me as if I'm sane? What are you working on? When are you going to give us your next? Over and over, it never stops. And I sometimes think all this fascination, this adoration and congratulation, it's all an act. They're humoring me like an invalid and getting ready to creep up on me and pounce on me and carry me off to the madhouse like I'm in Gogol. Back in the days when I was starting out, the years of one's youth, the best years, it was continuous torture. So, something I like to do around here before we depart is to leave us with a saying from Stoicism. And I think a lot of what happens in the seagull comes about because of anxiety. And Stoicism has to has a lot to say about anxiety. Tonight we'll we'll listen to the wisdom of Epictetus. When I see an anxious person, I ask myself, what do they want? For if a person wasn't wanting something outside of their own control, why would they be stricken by anxiety? And that's from his discourses. Epictetus. So today, when you're finding yourself getting anxious, ask yourself, why, why am I feeling this way? And then you'll start to think of some reasons, and you'll start to think of the external factors. You're going to think about Oh, I, I missed my 
my first alarm this morning, or, or I got a ticket on the way home today, are you going to think, my boyfriend is, is pissing me off? And then think of the seagull. And think about what symbols you let be symbols. Whether the seagull's alive, or it's dead, or it's taxidermied. I'm being serious. Those are all external. That's why you're unhappy. And Chekhov doesn't say this explicitly. He barely suggests it. But if we're vitally aware of our time, our aliveness, our deafness, our reincarnation, taxidermic or otherwise, and those implications for what it means now and what death means now. Anxiety becomes a seagull. It becomes an almost anti-symbol. It's a symbol of a symbol. It's a, it's a fear of a fear. It's anxiety about anxiety. And Chekhov might be able to solve those questions for you. So until next time, I'm Blake Guthrie, your host. You've been listening to the Writing Time Podcast. Stay curious.